And let's give it up for Mr. Robert Costanza, professor at ANU. Thanks, sorry, I've been corrupted by PowerPoint, evidently. <clears throat> but I really agree with the, the, the last comment that, uh, that Richard was making, and thanks very much to Ian and Mary for their comments earlier. Um, and I think we are all saying very much um, the same thing. Um, is all connected, we can't, there is no silver bullet, we have to change everything um, all at once. And I think fundamentally, we have to change our, our goals. You know, what are we really trying to achieve? Which of these buttons goes forward? The green, the green one in the middle? The big, the big green one. <clears throat> okay. Um, and I'll go over some of these slides pretty quickly, but uh, I, think, I think the visuals do help uh, to, to ingrain these things in your, in your mind. We're in a whole new geologic epoch. I mean, you've probably heard this before. I mean, humans are having a massive influence on the, on the planet. Uh, you know, so we're, we're in a full world. And I think this changes things. It means we can't go on. You know, business as usual is the utopian fantasy, uh, as Paul, Paul Raskin has said. Uh, we have to create a more sustainable and more desirable. And as, as Richard was saying, it's really a matter of saying, what is it that we want more of and what do we, what do we want less of? Um, but that's going to take thinking and acting differently. So I think what we need to do is integrate these, these three elements of having an adequate vision, first of all, of how the world is. And we know a lot more about how the biophysical world functions, but also how the social world functions, what leads to, to well-being uh, in people. And it's not consumption of more and more stuff as the sort of traditional economic uh, model. There's actually been experiments showing that the only people who actually behave that way are economists everyone else uh, behaves in a, in a very different way and has a much broader view of what's important. But we also need a, to change our vision of how we would like it to be. What, kind, what do we want more of and what do we want less of? What, what's our vision for the, uh, for the future? And I think that's a fundamental element and I think that should be the essence of democracy. What, what things are desirable? What kind of world do we want? That's the discussion we really should be having and that can help motivate a lot of the policy changes that we need. We need tools and analytical techniques to, to sort of back that up. We need to think more in systems terms. We need to think you know, um, broadly in how all of these things are interconnected. And we need uh, different kinds of implementation strategies. And I'll talk uh, a bit at the end about how do we think of this problem as an addiction and what kind of therapy do we need to actually get over our addiction to the current, the current system. And certainly we've made these big social changes many times in the past, historically, so it's not, it's not impossible, but it is gonna take um, more than just pointing out the problems. It's gonna take how do we create a better future. Part of changing our vision also is, is recognizing, <clears throat> and, and um, Ian already put up this, this diagram on the right before, you know, changing from the, the vision that humans are separate from nature, that the economy is separate from society, uh, that to recognizing that these things are all embedded in a complex system. Um, and that um, the environment is, is the rest of nature. We're all part of nature. Uh, we're not unnatural, we're not supernatural. Um, we, we exist on this planet. And the, the challenge is how do we put all those things together? Um, we're close to some tipping points. We're close to some biophysical tipping points with, with climate and other things, but I think we're also close to some social tipping points uh, where these positive things that are happening all over the world uh, are beginning to build uh, to the point where people are recognizing we can't go on the way we are and, and beginning to, to, uh, to really implement some of these changes. We know we're um, you know, exceeding several planetary boundaries, as has already been, been mentioned. 
but I think part of the problem is the way we frame these, these issues. Um, you know, we frame them in that very negative way. You know, we say, oh, you know, the world's coming to an end. We've got to stop doing what we're doing. You know, this is all, it is true. Uh, but uh, it's not the movie that most people are lining up to go see. Um, they'd rather, you know, see a reassuring lie. So I think, ultimately, we need a third movie. Uh, we need a more positive framing of these issues. We need to, to make it just more obvious that the kind of world that we can have, that we can create, is really much better. Uh, a sustainable and desirable economy and society in the rest of nature. It's not a sacrifice to make this transition. It's really a sacrifice not to make the transition. So we need to stay within planetary boundaries, but we also need to create the elements of well-being and quality of life to maximize those things. And uh, you'll hear more from Kate Rayworth later about the, uh, what she calls the donut. You know, how, do we, how do we balance these things out, as, as, uh, as Mary was saying uh, before? Um, uh, in, a, in a positive way. So um, this is really what ecological economics has, has been about for several decades now. Uh, it has these three major goals or questions. You know, how do we have an ecologically sustainable scale of the, the economy within society, within the rest of nature? How do we have a socially fair distribution of resources, both within the current generation of people, but also between current and future generations, between humans and other species, and how do we allocate our resources efficiently? Uh, so we need to do all of those things. Um, I'm sure you've seen the UN Sustainable Development Goals before. Anybody not seen these before in this, in this audience? I'd be surprised, oh, there's two. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think this is a significant global event. I mean, it's the first time in human history that the entire planet, all the governments of the world, have agreed you know, to a much broader set of goals than, than simply more, more growth of, of GDP, including you know, reducing poverty and, and hunger and improving, uh, you know, reducing inequality, you know, protecting uh, the, uh, the climate and, and, uh, and, and uh, uh, the marine and terrestrial resources. So there's a long list, you know, uh, peace and justice, partnerships for the goals. So it's really significant in terms of shifting the goals uh, away from, even the Australian government has supposedly signed on to these, uh, to these goals. So um, there, there is potentially some action there. And I think this is really you know, a description of what the majority of people around the world want. Uh, you have to recognize that those are not independent goals. They're all you know, interconnected in very complex ways with each other. There are trade-offs and synergies. They all sort of build to this overarching goal, I think, that we're trying to achieve of sustainable scale, fair distribution, efficient allocation, and, you know, and, a, and a prosperous and high quality of life that's equitably shared and sustainable. I think the majority of the people in the world really do want that kind, that kind of world. Um, however, I think we are stuck you know, with some worldviews and some visions that are a relic of, a, of an earlier time, of this empty world vision of the economy. And I think this is the vision, the mental model that drives a lot of our, of our uh, policymakers anyway, if not, if not the economists. But the, the basic sort of macroeconomy view of, you know, you have land, the primary factors of production, land, labor, and capital, but they're uh, sort of... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, there's perfect substitutability among these factors. You don't really need land or natural resources. The, the whole goal of the economy is to produce goods and services, you know, marketed goods and services, measured by GDP that are either consumed now or you know, reinvested to build more capital in the future. <clears throat> so what comes out of this model is that 
the more we consume, the better off we are. There's no real limits, you know, in this picture uh, to the growth of, of GDP and the economy indefinitely. And that kind of growth, that, that does motivate, I think, a lot of the, the, uh, the policies of, of countries around the world. And, uh, you know, GDP is a recent invention. It was really uh, invented uh, in the immediate pre-World War II period. And, and uh, some have argued that, you know, we, we couldn't have won World War II. The United States couldn't have won World War II without GDP. It was really an important tool to, uh, to mobilize the economy to produce all these guns and tanks and, and airplanes. But it was never designed as a measure of societal progress, as, as Richard has said, and even the creators recognize that. Uh, so, you know, we need a different vision uh, in the full world context, recognizing we live in a materially closed world, recognizing that these four types of basic types of assets of, of, of uh, built infrastructure, yes, uh, human capital, our, our individual people, but their health, their, their well-being, their, their, uh, uh, their education, um, our social capital, uh, all of the interactions uh, among people, including our institutions, our networks, our formal and informal institutions, and our natural capital, everything else that we didn't have to create, are all critical to producing conventional goods and services, but also to support human well-being much more uh, directly. And human well-being is a much more complex function than simply the more we consume, the better off we are. You know, we know from a lot of recent research about subjective well-being and life satisfaction, <clears throat> uh, that, that that depends on a whole uh, long list of basic human needs that go well beyond consumption and subsistence, you know, include, include affection and security and understanding and participation, uh, et cetera. So what we can do is to create the opportunities for people to meet those needs and feel this subjective well-being by how we arrange our, our assets, our built, our human, our social, our natural capital, and how we, how we use our time. Um, so, um, maybe a better picture is, is one that looks like this, recognizing that these four types of capital uh, need to interact with each other uh, in order to produce sustainable well-being. A real challenge is understanding how that interaction works, what sort of balance we need, and I guess we can, we can uh, uh, rely on some of traditional knowledge you know, about how to, be to best balance that, that, uh, that interaction be before these type between these types of assets, and, uh, and what do we really mean by sustainable well-being. For example, um, we, well, 20 years ago now, uh, tried to estimate, you know, how much does the natural capital component contribute uh, to human well-being and came up with some startling answers that it was much more than conventional GDP at the time. And these are all services that we don't have to pay for, you know, the, the maintenance of the climate, the uh, provision of water, and uh, there's a whole long list of, uh, of, of ecosystem services that are provided by functioning natural uh, ecosystems. Um, one thing we didn't control was what they put on the cover of the, the magazine. They, put, they said pricing the planet. We didn't really mean pricing. Uh, we meant valuing uh, the planet. Uh, because most of these ser these services are outside the market and should remain outside the market. They're common property. They're they're public goods, uh, so they're not for they're not measured by exchange values. They're not intended to be uh, exchanged in markets, but they are nevertheless supporting sustainable human well-being in a very fundamental way. Uh, more recently, we updated that uh, to see how things have changed and and um, recognized that over the last uh, 20 years or so. Uh, we, because of land use change, because of you know desertification, loss of coral reefs, etc., we've we've lost about 20 trillion dollars per year in the value of these ecosystem services. You know, it's a it's a huge number. 
Um, now, <clears throat> you can argue with, with our methods, and several, several, uh, uh, um, several have, uh, but <clears throat> I think the, the bottom line here is it's probably still a conservative estimate of the relative contribution to human well-being, and, it, and by putting a number on it, I think we can make that, make that, uh, that point more obvious. Um, another little exercise we did was to, to estimate how, what's the benefit-cost ratio, ratio for protecting our natural capital assets using this global scenario of expanding the, the terrestrial reserve network to cover 15% of the terrestrial biosphere and 30% of the marine biosphere, that would cost a mere 45 billion a year uh, to build and maintain, but the net benefits, the difference between the current land use and what it might be converted to was on the order of four to five trillion a year. So a 100 to one benefit cost ratio. And I challenge you to find a better you know, investment uh, these days as far as the social value of these investments. Um, I could only find one better investment. That was um, oil companies investing in political campaigns in the United States, which is unfortunately about 400 to one. Um, and I think uh, this can affect how we do business in very fundamental ways. Uh, there's a company called TrueCost that now estimates the um, external environmental costs, the impacts on health and ecosystem services by company. And they find if you do that, that most companies today um, are not really making a social profit. They're calling their external costs um, profit rather than, than recognizing that these are, those are a social cost. So we begin to get that information out there um, into the public. I think we can make some major changes. <clears throat> Uh, there is also um, increasing interest from the, the banking, insurance um, sectors of the economy. Uh, the National Australia Bank in particular um, has this emphasis on natural value and trying to bring the value of natural capital onto the books. Um, you may recognize this guy, the former uh, tre uh, head of treasury in Australia, Ken Henry. <clears throat> He's now the chair of, of NAB and is an interesting put, uh, quote from him in a recent speech that natural capital is not a footnote in a business plan. It's a core asset on the balance sheet um, of individual companies, but also for the, for the whole nation. So I think that's absolutely true. Okay, that's natural capital. What about social capital? <clears throat> well, we know that uh, income inequality is an, is an important feature to help uh, build and maintain social capital in a community. And it's from work by Richard Wilkinson and Kate Pickett uh, from a book called The Spirit Level, where they plotted income inequality by OECD country against this whole list of social problems. Um, and, and you can see that there's a very strong relationship. Uh, the higher the income inequality, the worse the social problems are. I don't know if you can read these, but you know the upper right corner there is the United States. Uh, the lower left corner is Scandinavia and, um, and Japan. <clears throat> Australia is somewhere in the middle. Um, we know that we can reduce income inequality. In fact, we were doing that. Uh, in all of the years post-World uh, War II uh, in, in many of the OECD countries, including Australia. It wasn't until 1980, uh, with the uh, emergence of the sort of neoliberal agenda, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, that these things all started going back in the opposite direction, and we now have income inequality rates equivalent to where they were back in the 1920s. And this has a significant effect on societal well-being and social capital. It's an interesting study done in the United States where they ask 5,000 uh, um, individuals you know, what they thought the income inequality was in the United States. It's the middle bar. They, then they compared that with the actual wealth distribution, the top bar. And then they asked them what they would like it to be, which is the bottom bar. You know, people didn't realize how bad it was, and they wanted it to be much more equitably distributed than, than it is, you know, more like 
the Scandinavian countries, for example. Um, this is an interesting graph I came across recently, which just shows you know, how that income inequality uh, has changed uh, over, the, over the time period. Uh, from 1980, uh, you can see that's how it was distributed, or the, the growth in income was distributed across uh, the income classes, and so a lot of the growth was going to the, 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 the lower in, uh, income groups. Whereas in 2014, almost all of the, the uh, positive growth is going to the top 1%. So this is, this is well known now. <clears throat> we also know that per capita GDP, if you plot that against life satisfaction, looks something like this. Uh, it has a positive impact at first, but beyond a certain point, it's not really improving uh, people's life satisfaction. <clears throat> the, um, you know, Costa Rica, uh, people in Costa Rica are as happy with their life as, as people in the US. Uh, or the Emirates, uh, with a third of the GDP per capita. So, um, but yet we, we have this emphasis on growth, and, but it's growth of the wrong things. It's growth of things that are included in the market, included in GDP, uh, at the expense of things that are, that are excluded, that are external, our natural and our social capital in particular. And when you start netting it out, um, you find out that you know, as Robert Kennedy said back in 1968, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worthwhile. So, uh, are there alternatives? Yes, there are many. Um, and as, first of all, recognizing that GDP is only measuring marketed economic activity, and some of that's gonna be bad. We don't want more pollution, we don't want more crime, we don't want more of a whole bunch of things. Um, and there are, there are several ways to try to correct that. And it's, it's definitely time to leave GDP behind, at least as a, as a policy goal uh, for, for, uh, for our countries. There's a whole range of alternatives. This is just a partial list, uh, some of which modify GDP, some of which are index numbers, some of which are uh, based on life satisfaction surveys. Um, <clears throat> one interesting one is the OECD Better Life Index, which has these 14 different elements. There's a really interesting website that allows you to change the weightings of those different, different elements and puts them together in an overall index. It turns out that Australia uh, is at the top of the list. Uh, part of the reason is that uh, community engagement is one of their, their uh, uh, indicators, and what they use for community engagement is one, one uh, indicator is participation in voting. So. <clears throat> Now, if you are required to vote, you usually get high numbers there, so Australia score, scores really well uh, on that, but you know, is that really community engagement? So you can argue with all of these kinds of indicators like this. Um, there's also you know, life satisfaction surveys that have been going on around the world, and, and also in Australia quite, quite intensively, where they ask people, how satisfied are you with your life overall, in general? Um, this is from the most recent report. Uh, these are the top 30 countries. You can see again that Scandinavia tends to, to be on top. Um, Australia is just behind New Zealand at number, at number nine. Uh, but uh, there's a whole range of countries. The United States is way down the list there somewhere. Uh, where is it? Number 14. Uh, but what they did here too was to separate out uh, how much they could explain by GDP per capita versus a range of other things around social and, and, uh, uh, and human capital. And GDP per capita doesn't explain a very large fraction of the variation in life satisfaction. Again, back to that other point. This is the bottom 30. goes to, you know, down to, to uh, 2.6 or something. I can't even read that. Uh, yeah, 2.6 for the Central African Republic. Again, still a small fraction re, re, um, explained by GDP. 
Um, one interesting indicator um, is called the Genuine Progress Indicator, or formerly the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare. It starts with personal consumption, but then it weights that by income distribution. So it gets at this inequality effect. Um, it then adds some things that are left out, the value of household labor, volunteer work, good things that we want more of, and it subtracts a bunch of things that we don't want more of, uh, like uh, you know, crime and and uh, family breakdown and a whole range of natural capital components, air and water pollution, et cetera. And you do that um, for the US and many other countries. Uh, you can see, and this is on an index basis, so it just changes from about 1990. Um, <clears throat> GDP is the blue line, continues going up. GPI is the red line, it tracks it for a while till about 1980 or so. Again, that's when the income inequality started in incre increasing, that's when environmental problems really started increasing. And it's leveled off ever since then. So we're not making genuine progress, or haven't been, uh, since about 1980. Um, same sort of pattern for China, where GDP has gone literally through the roof. GPI tracked it for a while, in this case, till about 1995, and then has leveled off since then, because inequality in China is also very large, um, and air and water pollution are, are horrendous. Uh, this is what Australia looks like, um, similar kinds of results. And you can see in all of those cases that life satisfaction has also not improved with GDP per capita. It's been uh, declining uh, slightly in most of those countries. So we collected the surveys like this that have been done for 17 different countries around the world. They, they show similar kinds of patterns, put that all together into a global indicator, and you get something that looks like this, where we've gone through a period of what you might call economic growth, where the, the economy was growing, GDP was growing, uh, but genuine progress was also increasing to a period of uneconomic growth, where GDP is continuing up, but genuine progress has leveled off or is, is slightly declining. So again, it's, you know, what do we measure, what do we, what do we want to increase, and what do we want to, uh, to not increase? Um, we need to go further, I think, in many of these indicators. Uh, there's an effort for what's called GPI 2.0. And what's missing from the current one, there's a lot of things about the cost, but not the, the benefits. What are the service, the positive benefits from natural capital, from human capital, and social capital? So how do we build a more, a broader indicator like that? Um, and we're doing some work on building more dynamic, uh, integrated models of how this, this system works uh, to sort of back that up. GDP, one of the reasons GDP is so popular, it has a whole model of the economy behind it, the system of national accounts, but it's a linear, static kind of model that doesn't include the contributions of natural and social capital. So there's a lot of work to do. Okay, <clears throat> but you know, <laughs> what if this is all a big hoax and we create this better world for nothing? Uh, so it's, it's a, another um, recommendation that we, we stop talking so much directly about the problems with climate change and start talking more directly about the kind of world we really want to produce. Uh, to create this sustainable and desirable future, we have to break our addiction to this growth at all costs economic paradigm to fossil fuels, to overconsumption. And to do that, we need to envision a more sustainable and desirable future that focuses on quality of life. Um, together with some colleagues, including Paul, Paul Atkins here, who's here in the audience, and, and Tim Kasser, a psychologist, uh, we started looking at uh, what could we learn from what works to overcome individual addictions uh, to what might work to overcome our societal addiction uh, to the current economic paradigm. And one therapy that seems to work well at the individual scale is called motivational interviewing, <clears throat> where instead of confronting the addict with they're just doing the wrong thing and they've got to stop doing it, 
which usually leads to a denial kind of reaction. <clears throat> it's the same reaction we're getting from society when we, when we just say, you know, we've got to stop doing what we're doing. Um, it instead engages the addict in thinking about their life goals. What do they want to achieve with their life? And then that can motivate them to change their behavior if they really want to achieve those different goals. So the analogy that we draw at the societal scale is with, um, is, is with envisioning and scenario planning. How do we get society as a whole uh, to begin coming to some consensus on the kind of world that we really want, where things are important to us? Gets back to the SDGs. I think that's a, a, a move in that direction of coming to some consensus on our societal goals. There's also been a lot of uh, scenario planning work that's been done in, in this area. This is from the um, Great Transition Initiative, which you may have heard of. They have a great website, and they have been looking at these four basic scenarios, which are kind of archetypical for, for a lot of scenario work. Uh, you know, that's based on do we focus, continue to focus on just GDP growth, just marketed growth, or do we focus on a broader definition of well-being? Uh, versus do we focus on the community and the well-being of the whole community versus individual well-being? And it creates these four scenarios going forward. Uh, market forces is kind of business as usual. Policy reform, we do more you know, government intervention. Still focused on GDP go growth <clears throat> um, versus uh, uh, you know, fortress world is it's really everybody for themselves. And the great transition is we're all in this together. The challenge, I guess, is how do you communicate this and engage the broader public in having this discussion of the kind of world that we, that we all want? Uh, we can do it with words, we can do it with pictures. I think ultimately we need to do it with much more engaging ways of doing this. You know, think of a Hollywood blockbuster movie that had some description of these four futures and then get people to, to vote. You know, which kind of world do we really want? I'll take a quick survey. Um, who's in favor of Fortress World? Although that's, that's one guy there. <laughs> Even though that's where, you know, that's kind of Trump world. That's where, that's where the United States seems to be headed. Even market forces, people are not really, you know, uh, in, in favor of that. Uh, when we actually did some survey work here in Australia and asked, um, asked people, we had a sample of about 2,500 uh, individuals who read about these four scenarios, uh, took a survey, and the, the, the results look something like this, that in fact, the vast majority of people prefer, if their first option is the, is the uh, great transition SDG kind of world. We also asked them where they thought the country was headed, and they, they said it was towards the business as usual uh, kind of world. So there's a real mismatch between where people think we're going, um, and they're being told every day that there is no alternative. That's the only way to go. But in fact, there is an alternative. But I think until we can come together, and, and, uh, and have a broad consensus about that that can feed back into the political process uh, that, that it won't change. Um, I'll very quickly go through this part. We uh, already mentioned Tim's, Tim Jackson's work on prosperity without growth, and another one is uh, Peter Victor's work on managing without growth. Is this feasible? You know, could we create uh, this better world? You'll, you'll get that reaction too. Yes, well, we, you know, it's all nice and utopia, but we, you know, it could never happen. Uh, just technically, we have to keep growing. He did a computer model of the Canadian economy and showed that yes, if we just stopped GDP, you know, without doing anything else, uh, we would have a no-growth disaster. But it's perfectly feasible to create a better, low or no-growth uh, positive economy uh, that had the po all the positive features that we were we were looking for. 
and to summarize the things that have to change if we wanted to get there. Uh, so, so maybe part of the therapy is a 12-step program. Um, these are the 12 steps. Um, <clears throat> what are the things we need to change to create this better world? New meanings and measures of success. You know, we need to move away from a reliance on you know, GDP, which was never me meant as a measure of societal success, to something that's, that's maybe better, GPI, uh, achieving the SDGs, something much better than that. Limits on material energy, waste, and land. We have to stay within planetary boundaries. <clears throat> More meaningful prices. Uh, you know, so everything we buy in the market, you know, the, the, is, uh, the, the, the market is lying to us about the true costs of, of those things. It's, ex, ex, it's not including all of the external costs. Uh, so <clears throat> we, need more, we need to make the market tell the truth about prices. More durable, repairable products, you know, as Richard was saying. You know, the products are not bad. It's just that we need to hang on to them. <clears throat> um, fewer status goods. A lot of our consumption is based on a, you know, a sort of what's called luxury fever, what Robert Frank calls luxury fever. It's for status reasons. It's not for, for real need reasons. And so we could, we could eliminate that. More informative advertising. The media is telling us that we're not happy. Uh, in fact, it should just be telling us what their products do. Uh, and <clears throat> better screening of technology. So not, you know, it, technology is a good servant, but a poor master. So we shouldn't pursue any technology or anything that we come up with. It's, is it serving our, our larger social goals? More efficient capital stock. This is the equivalent of, of uh, uh, consumer goods. More local, less global. Not just because it reduces um, the cost of transport, because uh, local um, economies really support human well-being. They support you know, social capital. They support a whole range of other things that, that are included in well-being but are not picked up by, uh, by market transactions. Reduced inequality uh, is extremely important. We talked about this. Less work, more leisure. Anybody opposed to this one? <laughs> um, and finally, education for life and not just work. Uh, so we're educating people because that helps improve human capital, that helps improve their ability to, to, um, to, uh, to have a better life, uh, to, to experience well-being, et cetera. Not just to make money to buy stuff that we, you know, more stuff that we don't need. So getting back to our original um, idea, we need a better vision of how the world works. We need the, you know, how we would like it to be. And we need these various um, uh, tools and analytical techniques and implementation strategies to, to, uh, create, uh, to create this better world. And finally, I think it's really important that we have these networks, like this group, and um, <clears throat> networks of networks. Uh, when you start looking around, uh, and I've been to meetings like this um, all over the world. I think in reality, there are many more people who are thinking this way than, than you know, it would appear from, from what you hear in the, in the media. Uh, this is just one other group called the Alliance for Sustainability and Prosperity. Uh, but <clears throat> I think what we need to do now is to build that united front. You know, how, how can we uh, create uh, this, uh, <clears throat> the, the view, uh, the vision uh, that, that we all share? What's the world that we, we all want? And also, we need to communicate more broadly uh, what these solutions look like. Uh, so uh, we've started this journal called Solutions. Uh, there's some hard copies out there on the desk, but I encourage you all to read it, but also to contribute to it. You know, what are your solutions? How do we make them more, more widely known? OK, thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. I was just wondering, when you're talking about um, this new economy that we're building, uh, and something that, like an economy that wouldn't be growing, 
whether that is possible within capitalism or whether we need to be explicit that that is ultimately a system that will replace capitalism because capitalism has to grow to survive. Mm -hmm. It depends on what you mean by capitalism. Um, Peter Barnes had a really interesting book a few years ago called pa Capitalism 3.0. And his point was it, it's really about property rights and how we distribute property rights over, over the system. And you know, can, capitalism, if you think about capitalism as being privatizing everything, uh, then yes, that has, to, that has to change. That doesn't mean we should eliminate private property. Uh, it just mean, means that we need much more emphasis on uh, the common sector on community, community property um, and, and, uh, and state property and getting the, right, getting the balance right. So um, whether you call that you know, uh, eliminating capitalism or if you call that reforming capitalism uh, to, to function uh, in the way that we want it to and to function to support uh, sustainable well-being as opposed to supporting just increasing the, the rate that we're producing and consuming goods and services. So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, it will be a different, a different form. And you can see, you know, that their capitalism is not one size fits all anyway. Uh, you know, you have the Scandinavian countries that are, that are, you know, you could you could say that they are a form of capitalism, but they're much more, um, you know, socially oriented. They're much more uh, focused on on these these broader social goals. So if we if we shift away, and it, and it gets back to this thing about, uh, you know, do we want GDP to grow or decline or, uh, or et cetera. It really, that's not what we should be measuring in the first place. What we really should be measuring is, are we improving uh, sustainable well-being? And the allocation of property rights and, and ownership and capital, um, I think, is, is going to be part of that. Personally, I think we need to have much more uh, community ownership, community um, you know, involvement, participation, because that improves well-being, and we we know that from the research, the psychological research uh, that's out there. So I think that where we need to go is a, a, a form of an, an economy that has much less of that that sort of privatized capitalism and much more of the social um, engagement with with capital, um, natural capital, social capital, etc. I don't know. I don't know if I have a good good name for that. I call it the Lagome economy. Um, and there's a question from Annabelle. Uh, hello. Um, my name's Annabelle and I'm involved in a law reform project. And one of the challenges I'm finding is trying to incorporate aspects of the rights of nature, which values intrinsic value of nature, regardless of how it services humans um, and society. How do we incorporate that into changes in public policy and law reform without getting sucked into a cost-benefit analysis of what it costs and how it benefits society? Because I fear that we're falling back into that economic paradigm, the traditional one, when we're trying to really engage people about that intrinsic nature, regardless of how it services us. Yeah. Um, I think what Annabelle is asking is how do we ensure that our future new economy values the natural world in a way that isn't just falling back into the little boxes of cost-benefit analysis. And even, I'm sure you're aware, ecosystem services is challenged, particularly by a lot of First Nations people, as putting a value on something that cannot be valued in, in that sense. So I think the question is, how do we think about integrating the more intrinsic values of the natural world into a future Specifically when economy? engaging with the government, when trying to do law reform, how do we convince well, them to change a it? A couple of answers there. First of all, this is a non, not an either-or question. Again, it's you know, it's there are different ways uh, to look at at the uh, the contributions of natural capital to human well-being, and you know, putting a um, mo 
expressing those values in monetary units is, is a way that communicates with a certain, certain audience, but it's certainly not the only way, and it's not like that, this is the only way you should do it. Uh, and it's not inconsistent or in conflict with, with other ways of, of communicating that value. So basically it's you know, whatever works, uh, but recognizing that, that those values exist, that they're not zero, you know, that they, they are, they are uh, fundamental and they're, they're critical, uh, both to the sustainability of our civilization, but also to our quality of life you know, now, right, right now. Um, there are potentially some, some institutions that need to change. You know, so I think this idea of, of uh, thinking of these resources as community assets. You know, you've probably heard that in New Zealand, the Wanganui River is now given you know, status as a person. Um, part of that, I think, is consistent with this idea, like um, Eleanor Ostrom's work on how to manage common property resources. If you don't know, Eleanor Ostrom was the, uh, the first and only woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics, and she's not an economist, she was a political scientist, but her work on common uh, property management by indigenous cultures, and what are the characteristics that allow those commons to be managed in a sustainable way. And there are a set of rules. You, you, have, to have, you have to limit access, you have to have you know, institutions around it, uh, but I think we can develop common asset institutions that are going to be more appropriate. The common asset trusts is, is one idea for doing that. This is one of Peter Barnes' um, ideas as well, that that's what the common sector needs to do. You think of the ecosystem as something we, <clears throat> we own together. You think of the atmosphere as something that we all own together. And we've, we've uh, advocated creating a, um, you know, an earth atmospheric trust. So you think of that as the overarching institution. People that damage that asset that belongs to all of us should be charged for that damage. People that contribute to that asset could be rewarded for, for doing that. But you can, you can manage these assets in a much different way than the conventional private property market-based uh, market approach. Can we please give um, Robert L a great appreciation?